This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, you're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire. We've got a real treat for you today in Matt Chorley's absence. It's how to win an election. It's a Tuesday, so we're bringing you the fourth episode of our brand new podcast with Peter Mandelson, Danny Finkelstein and Polly McKenzie, political masterminds all. Today, they're discussing how to win an election slogan. So we're going to bring you the first half of that episode just to whet your appetite. And remember, you can type in how to win an election and get it wherever you get your podcasts from. But after that, we're going to be talking about losing elections, specifically how the Conservative right are responding to the party's crisis. You don't want to miss any of that. But first up, it's Peter, Polly, Danny and Matt. There in front of me was a pot of yoghurt. And I said, you're just keeping that in case I get into a scandal. I remember feeling deeply assured and kind of crushing on Peter. Oh, thank oh. you. And it was before I met you, Peter. Welcome along again. I'm Matt Chorley. Uh, this is how to win an election. Uh, we've all, all all remote this week uh, from various different parts of the world. Uh, I, we are joined as ever by Peter Manson. Peter, where are you in the world? I am in Ditchley, North Oxfordshire. So those those enormous oil paintings behind you are not yours. Not in my own home, no. Very good, very good. Daniel Finkelstein, where are you? I'm in Pinner, but I don't actually believe, Peter, I think that those actually are his pictures. He just doesn't want anyone to, uh, to think they're at his house. Things really did get better under New Labour, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> it would be much grand if it really was Peter's house. And uh, Polly, where are you in the world? Polly McKenzie. I'm on 43rd Street in Manhattan uh, in a hotel room. Okay, fine, you win. Uh, you're in New York, which uh, Danny and I will be after we've set sail across the Atlantic this week, which is where we're off to on the uh, the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival at sea. So that's very exciting. Now, before we get on with what we're going to talk about this week, uh, we've got a question uh, from Catherine for you, Peter. Last week, you told us all about the story of how 
Gordon Brown invited you into number 10, put aside your differences having not spoken for 10 years, asked you to join his government. You explained you were called into the was it the state, the wood-paddled state dining room. The, the, of the, small, sta the small state dining room. Only the small state dining room. Um, uh, and you were presented with a curly sandwich, a banana and a yoghurt. And Catherine says, did he eat the lacklustre lunch? I ate everything bar the sandwich. Oh, very good. Everything about the sandwich. Fa couldn't face the sandwich, but the yogurt was delicious, and and I was so hungry I had to eat the banana. I'm incredibly impressed at the recall, Matt. You know, I can't remember a single detail like that. Maybe he didn't eat the yogurt, and we'll never know. That's the beauty of uh, <laughs> that's the beauty. Just say, just say it with confidence. Anyway, as we know, as I always said, new labour was built on detail, <laughs> or just saying things which weren't true with confidence. Right, let's move on uh, to what we want to do this week. Uh, this week, obviously, the autumn statement. This week is a great opportunity. <laughs> this week's wasn't that funny, Danny. It wasn't that funny. It was very funny. Sorry, Peter. <laughs> it doesn't get much fun in Pinner. This week's autumn statement is a great opportunity for the parties to wheel out their slogans. A government prepared to make long-term decisions so that we can build a brighter future. Britain must, Britain can, Britain will get its future back. It's the fair deal that British people deserve. So those are the big three uh, slogans that I suspect we'll hear a lot of this week from... Richie Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, but also uh, Keir Starmer and Rachel Weaves and uh, whoever speaks for financial matters for um, the Lib Dems. We'll never know. Um, before we come to the detail of those, uh, Polly, do slogans matter? I think they can matter. Um, they probably don't really filter through to every single member of the electorate, but they're best when they actually encapsulate something that is distinctive about your platform. There's something about the ones that you've just shared that they feel quite samey. Like fairness is one of those words. I mean, who's not in charge of fairness, right? Like it's the long-term decisions. It's much better, I think, when they crystallise a choice, an idea like uh, you know, that we're choosing to move forward or that, in fact, that at the 1929 general election, when my great-grandfather was elected uh, as an MP in Berwick, uh, the Conservatives had a slogan of safety first. Even that, right, it's a choice. Uh, and I, I think slogans are best when they encapsulate something meaningful that you're actually trying to say as a political party. Well, we've done a little bit of polling on these uh, slogans to see what the public think. Uh, so the the... Long-term decisions for a brighter future. Actually, 40% of the public like that. Uh, it lands uh, better with uh, Lib Dems and Remainers than it does with uh, Leavers. So that's the, the Conservative slogan. The flip side, let's get Britain's future back. Labour's slogan, 35% are positive about that, but much higher amongst Leave voters and people who voted Conservative in oh. 2019 half of 2019 conservative voters like let's get britain's future back so it's interesting that peter are they both addressing really their weaknesses or are they identifying their their target audiences really really important because they are labor's target audience i mean i think that long-term decision frankly i mean it sounds like the title of an academic dissertation or the beginning of a submission by the civil service to to a minister i, I don't i don't know how 40 percent like that but the point about getting britain's future back is that it does have some power it has some emotion and that's why it, why it landed with its target audience what do you think of them danny 
Well, it's very interesting that that slogan works with levers because it's actually a failure of political analysis on my part. When you raised it with me uh, on one of your programmes, Matt, I said I thought that it would appeal to Remainers who thought they'd lost their future with Brexit. But clearly the word back is important um, in that. Uh, and there's quite a lot of people who want anything back that they had before. It's a very strong emotion. I mean, all these slogans will have been tested uh, they won't be used unless they're tested. Uh, so they'll be tested in focus groups. They'll be uh, they'll be tested um, quantitatively as well. So they'll know this, and that's why it is interesting that obviously uh, Peter's right. That is a key market for Labour, and clearly they've tested it and discovered that that market likes that slogan. Um, but but it's. You know, with the Tory slogan, uh, long-term decisions, people like the idea of long-term decisions. I just note that they've ditched the uh, long-term uh, decision strategy they had at the party conference, uh, or certainly the accompanying political strategy only after a few weeks. So it didn't turn out to be a long-term decision. Yeah, I must admit, I was quite struck because I remember us having that conversation, Danny. But yeah, thir- about 30% of Remainers like Let's Get Britain's Future Back. 45% of leavers and it's almost exactly the opposite for the Tory one much more popular amongst remainers than leavers so maybe there is that sort of sense of uh, of crossover uh, about 25% like for a fair deal for the lib dems which is fine but as you were saying Polly basically nobody knows who any of these uh, belong to uh, uh, only about one in five could identify the correctly the uh, the slogans for the main parties, Conservatives, Labour, a bit less of the Lib Dems. Everyone could spot a fairer, greener country belong to the Green Party because it's got the name of their party in it. Is there an argument, Polly, for just hammering away at slogans? But actually, the, you, you must have got sick of it when you were working in number 10 for the Lib Dems. The Tories banging on about long-term economic plan to the point it became a sort of panto joke line. But clearly it worked in 2015. It was like we haven't finished the job you know, Britain's on the right track, don't turn back election for them. Well, it's the core rule of communications, isn't it? When you are bored to the back teeth of saying something, that's when it maybe has started to filter through. Uh, It's the same with uh, leafleting. You know, if you are getting pushback on the doorstep, don't you dare put any more leaflets through my door. Again, that that's when perhaps you're starting to have delivered enough enough leaflets. So you, once you've landed on a message that works for people, you do have to get really boring and thorough about it. The long-term economic plan is forwards. Long-term decisions for a, a, I can't even remember what the last words. Brighter future. Brighter future. That's, I mean, it's just too many words, isn't it? I, 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 I'm not sure how you could hammer that without just getting your tongue gargled. Tongue? You know what I mean. You see, <laughs> I can't even talk about it without uh, turning it into a tongue twister. And and you just know that people on the election campaign, they'll be they'll, they'll, they won't say brighter. They'll say fairer future, and then somebody will turn that into a controversy. And somebody, will, you know, it's it's too complicated. The point, you know, Matt, about a, a slogan at a party conference or an election is that it's got to enable you to turn it into a narrative. If you can make a speech around it and if you can develop it and apply it to this policy or that and if you can whip people up and the audience into a sort of emotion that's what that's why it's so important you've got to you've got to make it perform for you but what then about danny when we're looking at you know we've got the autumn statement in the middle of this week there's a tension because if the tory strategy is long-term decisions for a brighter future 
um, you know, steady as she goes. David Cameron's back. It's just like the good old days. Yet there's clearly pressure on Jeremy Hunt that they've got to do stuff now. So the long-term decision strategy might be, well, we, I think we can do tax cuts the year after next and the one after that. But lots of angry Tory MPs want things to happen now and they want things that they're worried about rather than what the public are worried about so it becomes inheritance tax and tax thresholds rather than the things which poll better so there's a constant tension there at this point in the cycle do you think jeremy hunt should be doing the thing that keeps tory mps happy or have they got to start that the, the dreadful phrase pitch rolling towards the general election and making sure that this message finally now hangs together the problem with the idea that you're going to make the decisions that no one has made for 30 years is there's usually a good reason why they didn't make them. Uh, and uh, it's hardly likely that you've come along with a load of obvious things that everyone likes uh, that are quite easy to make, but no one made them before you did and suddenly it occurred to you to make them. Uh, and so I think that, you know, the moment I heard that whole idea, uh, that I thought to myself, well, that's going to be very difficult to find proof points of and They've got a couple, and obviously HS2 was the most important of those, and then they had the smoking, but I wondered about the others. So actually, I'm not sure that it's going to even raise itself uh, when Jeremy Hunt speaks, just because uh, I wonder what it is that he can do in his spring statement that hasn't been done, uh, for th that nobody else thought of doing for 30 years, um, but was actually quite easy to do or possible to do. So I, I, I think um, probably the choosing of David Cameron, which makes the whole idea of having of making decisions that were not made for 30 years impossible to pursue, uh, will be a moment where they'll quietly move away from that, which is what, of course, Peter predicted in, in the first of our podcasts. And Peter, what do Labour need to do this week? Uh, because we got quite a lot of policy, actually, from Rachel Reeves in a widely applauded speech at party conference. One suspects that for every proactive policy for the Tories, we'll probably see some traps left for Labour. Does Jeremy Hunt max out all the spending this year to put the squeeze on uh, afterwards if Labour inherit uh, the, the, the nation's finances? What message do Labour need to try and land? Two messages. One, fiscal discipline, that they're going to be fiscally responsible, whatever the pressures. And secondly, that they have a plan for the future, that they're going to build, build, build. We're going to grow, 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 and that we will do everything we can to raise levels of public and private investment, mainly private investment in the economy, because that's what's going to turn things around in the long term. Now, the trap, I think, is over inheritance tax. And I somehow don't feel that that is such a trap. I don't know what Labour would do in response to a, a future a uh, hypothecated cut in inheritance tax. It would be a promise for after the election, uh, no doubt. I know people like George Osborne are very fond of saying, oh, I you know this is a real, this is a real teaser. It, it really, you know, it goes under the surface. It gets the votes. It really tickles people. They feel a great sense of aspiration. And even if they're not rich enough ever to pay any inheritance tax, nonetheless, they aspire to be. I think things at the moment are just too serious, too dire. The cost of living pressures are too great. I just think people are finding day-to-day -day living a struggle. And the idea that they might, you know, sometime in the future aspire to paying inheritance tax and therefore will vote in favour of a projected cut in it is too far-fetched. I don't think it is a trap. What do you think, Polly? Do you think they, they will or won't do it? It feels to me like there's a judgment here about do they want to prop up their support with the public or with Tory MPs? 
who do fret about inheritance tax think it's very important, even though there was a there was a quote in the Sunday Times a few weeks ago, there was a story around this, where a sort of special advisor or source said the quiet bit out loud. They said, nobody actually really pays inheritance tax, but everyone is worried that they might. So that's why they should do something about it, even though it actually cost them loads of money, even though most people wouldn't be caught by it anyway. What do you think? Well, I think there's a ghost here, which is the ghost of when George Osborne announced that big inheritance tax cut policy and sort of scared Gordon Brown out of holding an early general election whilst he was still really popular. Uh, and, and so the Conservatives sort of deeply believe that this is the way uh, both to appeal to voters and to somehow lay a really clever elephant trap for, for the Labour Party. Uh, I, just because it appeals to Conservative MPs, that doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing in sort of tactical terms, because holding your party together, your team together, so that you can campaign effectively is in fact a really important thing to do for success in an election campaign. But it still does need to work for voters. And it, it does feel, I think Peter's right, a bit like an indulgence. Plus, you know, the reality is that it's terrible policy. Uh, we have a hugely divided society. A trillion pounds or so is going to be passed on from uh, the, the generation in their kind of 70s and 80s, probably to people in their 50s and 60s. Uh, it's it, it sort of deeply unhelpful uh, economic uh, impact of that and of course what it means is that increasingly people who are able to inherit from their family will have good lives and people who can't don't have access to that trillion pounds increasing divide and that causes enormous harms for all of us so the indulgence of doing this sets them on the path to you know probably much more harmful uh, situation for the actual country in the future which is the thing that really irritates me the most about it. Danny, what do you think? Will they go for long-term decisions for a brighter future or short-term traps for Labour to fall into? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I think it'll be actually kind of neither, really. I don't, I don't think that um, there are very many things they can do that were such big traps for Labour. Um, and I don't think there are very many things that are available that are long-term decisions that haven't been made for 30 years that they're suddenly going to make, as I said. I think they'll end up... Uh, doing things that slump somewhat in the middle. I, I rather think inheritance is a budget measure. Maybe it is a spring statement, uh, an awesome statement measure, um, and goes with the spending uh, plans. But we'll we'll see. It's been heavily reported, obviously. Um, but uh, I, I, you know, but I do wonder about that. But but I don't. So I think that they're going to. Uh, end up doing sort of quite steady uh, things that head in the direction they want to go without being very dramatic. Well, we wait and see. Obviously, the uh, the autumn statement happening on Wednesday. Up next, we'll focus more on slogans. What's the best and actually, more importantly, worst slogan you've come across? And are slogans better when you set them to music? Uh, we've got some of the best campaign anthems of... Well, actually, the dim and distant past because they don't do them anymore. Maybe we should start a campaign to bring them back. This is Matt Chorley with Peter Manderson, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein bringing you How to Win an Election.
That was Danny Finkelstein, Peter Mandelson and Polly McKenzie. Remember, you can read Danny in The Times every week. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox to get yourself a subscription. And in case you've forgotten, just type in how to win an election to listen to today's episode in full wherever you get your podcasts from. Coming up, enough about winning elections. How about losing them? Today, we're talking about how the conservative right might respond to the next year in politics. 
who of those groups strikes you as the most dangerous for the Prime Minister or do they all pose different threats in different ways at different times? I, I think it's the latter, but I think what's uh, what's happened over the last couple of weeks is that the new Conservatives, uh, they're a fairly small band of red wallers in in the main but actually they have gained significant influence uh, over the last couple of weeks and what you've seen now is that while they were um, a similar mindset similar kind of group of people representing similar types of constituencies since Suella Braverman's sacking and the reshuffle you've seen people from other bits of the right of the party now joining that group so for example Simon Clark. Um, a Trussite, he is now um, very, very active in that group. And Neil O'Brien, who was a, a minister until uh, the reshuffle, he he quit uh, of his own uh, accord. Um, he's also now very, very active in that group. Now, he's very, very closely aligned with Kemi Badenoch. Mm. So you see uh, this group, which was reasonably closely aligned to Suella Braverman, um, it is now expanding. It, other wings of the right of the party are trying to gain influence in that group because they see it as an important uh, vehicle, one that's getting lots of press attention at the moment. Uh, and how are these people taking the appointment of Baron Cameron of Chipping Norton, Katie? Obviously, he ran the gauntlet of Tory MPs for the first time at the 1922 committee last night. Did anybody get up and take a pop at him on behalf of the right or was it a bit of a love-in? I think it was a nostalgic love-in. <laughs> majority <laughs> but you did and I, I think around the 100 MPs which is quite a good turnout for the uh, meeting of the 22 these days uh, a lot of it were figures who had served in the Cameron era and um, but you did have Jonathan Gullis a 2019 MP Red Wall MP um, who directly asked David Cameron about the ECHR and said is it true your mate George Osborne on his podcast uh, we should not promote that podcast on a Times radio but is it true that um, when he says that you do not take the ECHR um, that you would not want to leave the ECHR. And David Cameron replied saying that George Osborne knows me well, but he doesn't know me that well in the ECHR and tried to uh, mm. calm, I think, these MPs by saying he's more punchy than you realise on it and pointed to how he had ignored ECHR rulings during his time as Prime Minister from time to time. So I think there was an active effort because I think Number 10 slightly underestimated or didn't price in how sacking Suella Bravman and bringing in David Cameron would send a signal that is worrying parts of the right. And how does this map onto the red wall, Sam? Is it a case of if you're the further into the red wall you are, the more right winger Tory MP is likely to be? Is this, you know, born out of electoral concerns about the red wall or is it slightly more complicated? I think it's always more complicated and I think it can be very easy to kind of dismiss um, the, the right wing of the party. Um, you know, the... Um, that you can get all kinds of, I won't I won't use them, but you can get all kind of very derisory, dismissive names about um, the, the right-wingers. Uh, and actually, you know, some of them are more nuanced than perhaps we, we um, always give them credit for. Um, but I think, you know, clearly in the Red Wall, um, there are issues that are more pressing than perhaps in, in the Blue Wall seats. So immigration is... Uh, something that does come up on the doorstep a lot for MPs when they're out canvassing. And um, they do, um, they do, the MPs are very, very serious about the Rwanda policy and, and making progress on the small boats because they feel that is something important to deliver for their voters. Well, let's take a look now, having had that spotter's guide to the Tory right, let's take a look at some of the possible paths they might take heading into the next election and beyond. So let's take a look at our first option. 
Could the Tory right try and force a leadership change before the next election? Now, when I speak to senior Labour people, as we all do, one of the cases they make for a May election is if Rishi Sunak goes to the local elections in May and has a terrible time, are the Tory, are the Tory right, are Tory MPs going to say, well, could it be worse with another leader at the next general election? And indeed, some Tory MPs are already submitting no-confidence letters in Rishi Sunak. Here's uh, the MP and former minister, Dame Andrea Jenkins. Don't forget Dame Andrea Jenkins. She did get a dame hut off Boris Johnson. Speaking on GB News recently, explaining why she sent in a letter of no-confidence in the Prime Minister following the reshuffle. To me, it's bigger than just the party. We're fighting for our country now and we are fighting for not only conservatism, but we're trying to stop the likes of Starmer getting in number 10. And we cannot do that with Rishi Sunak. Look, we've been a year now of Rishi Sunak in post and look, we're hemorrhaging votes. Um, I've had people resign membership from my constituency and we've seen it up and down the country. And if you look at the party membership, we you know, we're more in tune with it, this so-called wing of the party and the general public. Katie, is this as crazy as it sounds or is there a slim chance that it could happen? Look, the Tory party, as did two leaders last year alone, so I don't think anything is too crazy to happen. I do think it's unlikely, though, in the sense that, first off, Andrea Jenkins is not a bellwether MP when it comes to majority party parliamentary thinking. Um, she's also a hardcore Boris Johnson loyalist. But it is the case that next May is a dangerous point for Rishi Sunak. You are going from the highs of the Boris Johnson era when it comes to when these last uh, council seats were up for grabs. And it means that if the polls don't improve, I think you potentially, it's always been the point when you could potentially see a move. I think the problem is, you can see how you might get to the number of MPs. And I do think MPs probably send no confidence letters many days of the year is, and they can take them back. Um, but I think it's the point where you could potentially get to the number of letters if all these groups, the Trust Science, the Boris Science, um, the Suella Bravman back has come together. But would they actually have the numbers to win in that vote? I think that's highly unlikely. How seriously do you take it, Sam? Yeah, I think it's incredibly unlikely. I think um, you, you, obviously you get people like Andrea Jenkins who are clearly very frustrated with what's happening. But from the actual, if you if you if you look at the New Conservatives, for example, who have now become um, this kind of um, very important, if if fairly small group, um, there is absolutely zero discussion within that group about ousting Rishi Sunak, that, that is not what they are trying to do at all. Uh, and then when you look across the right as a whole, um, it is quite splintered and you certainly don't get that sense from any of the kind of grandees like Ian Duncan Smith or Priti Patel on that wing of the right of the party. So I think it is very, very unlikely. Uh, so what likelihood rating would you give it out of five, Sam? One? One, yeah. Do you, do you agree, Katie? I'm imagining, is there a zero on the scale? No, my, I'm afraid no, not. Okay. <laughs> then I'm, I'm probably going to just give it a two, just in the sense nothing is truly impossible, and I'm taking one as impossible. <laughs> okay, well, by that logic, Katie, we'll agree with you and give it a two. Woke rubbish. Woke culture. There you go, there you go. Right, option number two for the Tory right, waiting it out until after the election, patiently waiting until after the next election, whatever the result, and then installing a right-wing candidate to rebuild the party. Here is the Tory MP, Miriam Cates, who we've mentioned already. She's one of the key figures in the new Conservatives faction. And here she is defending Suella Bravman, then still Home Secretary, on this show after she'd written an article in The Times criticising the police. 
the one that led to her eventual sacking. She's showing that she's a free-thinking leader who um, has has opinions. And I think people often criticise politicians for not speaking their mind or for towing what people perceive to be a party line. Uh, it's trying to stay on message. And I think you can't criticise Suella Braverman for doing that. She says what she thinks. She's honest. She speaks, you know, she speaks the mind. As I said, she reflects the views of a lot of people in this country. But she's not doing that by being rebellious or, or critical of the government. She is just taking uh, taking a stand as a leader. Sam, is a Suella Bradman leadership campaign a foregone conclusion? Uh, yeah, I think I think she will certainly she will certainly put her, her name forward. Um, how far then that campaign goes is is a different matter. We what's really important to remember is that actually when you look at the seats being selected at the moment, um, the Conservative seats that are up for grabs. Um, the selections are almost always favouring local candidates, mm. and that means we do not know who they, what the kind of, uh, you know, left or right um, politics of those MPs are. But they're unknown quantities. So when it comes to selecting the next leader, there are an awful lot of unknowns. And so at the moment, Suella Braverman clearly has a, a group in Parliament who are keen to see her installed as the next leader, and she will almost certainly make that le leadership bid. Um, what then happens next is very, very dependent on who is left after the election and what kind of new MPs come in. Yeah, and that, that's the key point, isn't it, Katie? You know, even though it's obvious, it's been obvious for a long time, Swella Bradman will run as a candidate of the right for the next leadership election. We don't know what the parliamentary party of the Conservative Party looks like after the next election. And we don't know what the sort of essay question of that election is going to be. You know, every leadership election poses a slightly different questioning. You know, in 2019, it became who can stem the bleeding to the Brexit party and beat Corbyn, and that obviously favoured Boris Johnson. You know, if the Tories lose loads of red wall seats or if they lose loads of seats in the South, it could be slightly different, couldn't it? I mean, and so it's not a foregone conclusion that even if Stella Bradman is making lots of noise and has admirers now, that she's going to be the flavour of the month when a changed Conservative Party has to elect a new leader after the election. No, it's not. And what we have to see with Suella Braverman is it's quite easy to get lots of attention soon after you leave a great office of state. Keeping it up in the months that you know follow um, when you don't have the status that comes with your position can be harder. And now I think what helps Suella Braverman is the fact that the small boats row is going to keep going. There's going to be uh, fights in Parliament about the legislation and that will keep her relevant because she will say, well, listen to my plan. But I think her main competition too, it's not just the essay question, it's who is the candidate of the right? Because mm. we saw at the last leadership contest it wasn't really clear Liz Truss was going to make it to the final two for some time because she was battling it out with Kemi Badenoch, Suella Braverman, all going for the same type of votes. And therefore, I think there's a question as to whether Kemi Badenoch looks is enhanced by staying in the government or Suella Braverman is enhanced by being outside the government. And that's the balance of not being so disruptive. Your colleagues in the New Conservatives say you're actually reducing the chance of us winning or even, you know, stemming losses at the next election. And uh, Kerry Bade not looking so tired that if it is a disastrous Tory defeat, it's not the, there's a risk that everyone in the cabinet starts to look pretty toxic for being associated with it. Uh, so you think it's quite likely that the right will wait until after an election to make these big decisions about who and what and how? 
Yes, and I also think Miriam Cates is a big supporter of Sarada Bravman, but if she somehow held onto her seat, there are quite a few MPs on the right who think that she could be a real fresh face who could be a leader too. So I think everything is to play for. So out of, out of five, waiting until after the next election then, likelihood? Four. Four. Sam, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree. And I think Katie makes a very good point about Miriam Cates that she is the um, person who is being kind of um, set up to step in if if Suella Braverman and, and Kemi Badenoch uh, don't end up being that figure that looks right at the time. So, um, but yeah, definitely, I think um, for... Woke rubbish. Woke culture. Woke culture. There is a lot wrong with being woke. Right. There you go. There you have it. Four out of five. Likelihood for waiting for the next election, the Tory right, to decide how it proceeds. Across the UK, on DAB, online and on your smart speaker, this is Times Radio. So where did the Tory right go next? We've spoken about them waiting till after the next election to plot their next move and we've also spoken about a leadership challenge. Our expert panel didn't think that one particularly likely. But how about this one? Some sort of pact with another party or even defection. Reform UK of Nigel Farage and Richard Tice or even Lawrence Fox's Reclaim Party share some ideas with MPs on the Tory right. And indeed, last month, I spoke to Nigel Farage on this very show. I asked him about his plans to take on the Tories at the next election and whether he'd ever consider standing aside for Tory candidates in certain seats. I stand aside for what? Stand aside for a party that's given us the highest taxes in 71 years. Stand aside for a party that has given us a surveillance state. We're not quite China, but we're getting there. Stand aside for a party that tells us repeatedly they'll stop the boats without ever really intending to do so. No, I don't think so. Is that your uh, Tory leadership manifesto, Nigel? <laughs> well, I tell you what, they've got to do something to reconnect with the country because if you look at the numbers, over 40% of those that voted for them in that 2019 80-seat majority landslide have no faith in them whatsoever. They've got a heck of a lot to do. And if Rishi thinks stopping people buying cigarettes who were born after 2009 is an election winner, then I think he's got another thing coming. Katie, our latest Yuga poll for The Times has reform at 10%. That's the same as the Lib Dems. How significant a threat do Tory MPs think they are and what do they think they should do about it? So I think the threat has increased from a few months ago. Um, there was a feeling that Richard Tice, um, I think particularly after local elections when they didn't make much in the way of inroads, um, was not the right figurehead and therefore they didn't have to worry too much about it in the way they have in previous elections. I think that's now changing a bit. Um, I think it's why you see these MPs, particularly those in the red wall, pushing so much on small boats. Um, so I think there is a sense it could potentially skim a few percent off to the point that in some of these more marginal seats, it is the, you know, the difference of a, a Labour win or a Tory win. I don't think there's an expectation that reform are going to win seats in and of themselves, but they can do what I think these, um, you know, the party on the right to the Tories has always posed a risk of, which is stopping the Tories from winning those seats. Um, I don't think you're going to get a formal alliance or so forth from number 10. Instead, they want to crush that vote. That's how they would go about it. I think the question is, um, you know, at conference, I remember chairing a panel of Jacob Rees-Mogg, and he was suggesting that uh, Nigel Farage and the Conservative Party, uh, it would be better if Nigel Farage was a Tory peer, because mm. he thought if he became a Tory MP, he'd be the person who won that leadership contest. So I think there's a question of what happens eventually to that part, part of the party and the people in it. Uh, what prospects, Sam, 
defect, Tory defections to Reform UK and indeed Nigel Farage joining the Tories? Um, I think there's, there's limited uh, prospects of defections because if you look through history, those um, those types of moves don't tend to do well. They, those MPs then uh, lose their seats at the, the following election. Uh, I think also, actually, a lot of Conservative MPs are quite um, hostile to reform because they feel reform are out to destroy them. Um, and and so it, it is quite personal, I, I think. It, it would be a surprise. I think the clever thing to do would be, as Katie just said, bring uh, Farage in and put him in the Lords. That would that would probably solve a lot of problems for them. But whether he's willing to do that, obviously he's got his new uh, celebrity career yeah, in, he in might the jungle. Be, <laughs> might be king, not just a Lord, in, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, Sam. Uh, <laughs> right, so I'm guessing you both think that's pretty unlikely. What? What? How would you rate that out of, uh, out of five, Katie? So this is an alliance. Yeah, an uh, alliance, a pact, defections, the whole package. I'm, I think a two. A two. Sam, what do you reckon? I'd go one. One. So let's say, let's say one. Woke rubbish. Right, finally, the final option before the Tory right, just carry on as they are, keeping the pressure on the Prime Minister on key issues for the right, accepting they probably can't get rid of him, especially driving away at the Rwanda policy. Obviously, following last week's setback in the Supreme Court, the Prime Minister gave himself a deadline of remedying these legal problems by the spring. We will get the job done, and that involves the new treaty and new domestic legislation, and that will clear the remaining barriers to us getting flights off as planned in the spring of next year. Katie, final thought from you. Do you think it's likely then, the probably likely scenario is we have this same situation continuing, Tory Wright pressuring the Prime Minister on individual issues, particularly Rwanda, but the overall dynamic probably doesn't change. Yes, I think that, I think we're just going to see more pressure on Rishi Sunak, but particularly it'll be seen through the boats legislation. And I think if Rishi Sunak cannot get a flight, you could actually see Rishi Sunak having to adopt a position that does represent the rights, such as promising to leave various human rights treaties. So you reckon five out of five for this one? Let's go for it. Let's go all in. Uh, and Sam, what do you think? Yeah, I think um, because the right is fractured in the way it is that you've got um, people like John Redwood who are very, very um, keen on low taxes and that's their um, kind of raison d'etre. And then you have the new Conservatives. The new Conservatives, when they launched, were kind of billed as this rebel group, but actually they were only ever set up really to try and um, to, to try and influence number 10 when it came to issues like migration. That is their number one um, topic, that and, uh, and the family values um, side of it. But particularly Rwanda and migration is their number one mission and they want to have that influence in number 10. Um, so I think, yeah, five, five out of five. For so me. Woke rubbish. Wonderful. Woke culture. Woke culture. There is a lot wrong with being woke. Woke, woke, woke. Well, I can hear the... Bells of number t uh, of uh, big. I can hear Big Ben chiming uh, midday, not midday, half eleven. God, I'm 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 getting carried away here. Uh, but thank you very much both for playing along with me today and for your uh, for your ratings. Uh, just before we conclude, I've been speaking to Greg Hans, the Trade Minister. He was Tory Party Chair until about five minutes ago, responsible for organising or not the Conservative Party. I asked him. What was his message to Tory colleagues on the right of the party who were manoeuvring and briefing against the Prime Minister? My message, Patrick, would be very um, straightforward. Actually, I think the Conservative Party it might surprise you that I would say this, but I think the Conservative Parliamentary Party is the most united it's been for some years. 
Uh, and I think that there isn't all this talk about uh, people manoeuvring against Rishi Sunak. No, it, it just isn't there. You know, there's perhaps a handful of people, a handful of MPs at the most, uh, to be quite frank. Um, but we do have a challenging situation. You know, we are we are behind in the polls. Uh, we need that to change. We need uh, to uh, make sure that uh, we hold on to those seats that we won in 2019, uh, plus those seats that we've held for longer. Um, we're facing uh, challenges against uh, Labour, against the Liberal Democrats, against the uh, SNP in Scotland. So, you know, I mean, there's a number of challenges. And my urge to colleagues would be to remain united. Uh, Rishi is the right man for the job. And uh, we need to move forward and be united, stay united at the next general election, which you know may be, uh, may be just a month away. Just some months away? That's quite intriguing from uh, the former Tory chairman, Greg Hans. Might there be a May election after all? You heard it here first. That's all we've got time for on the Redbox podcast today. Don't forget to subscribe to this one and how to win an election. I'll be back tomorrow. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.